Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. One eyewitness. One major pop cultural event. You had to be there, uncover stories that shed light on our most iconic moments. Each week, a different host takes on the task of finding and interviewing one person within 48 hours who was there with no idea what their event will be. Come join the ride. Hi, Julia. It's Webb from High Bar. Your assignment for this week's episode of You Had to Be There is The Last Waltz. You must find someone who is at the concert and interview them, and you have 48 hours to do it. Best of luck. My name is Julia Thompson. I am a film producer mostly. I also direct and produce documentaries. Sometimes I'm a professor, sometimes I make fictional podcasts. And while this is officially my first nonfiction podcast, so bear with me if you can, I'm making this with Tini Lieberson, who I've known since I was 16. Tini is a professional musician. She plays lots of instruments, has toured with Sharon Van Etten, and has her own solo project, Lou Tides. We've actually shared Thanksgiving on more than one occasion, so we're friends. Here's the tape of Teeny upon learning our assignment. Okay, so it's the last waltz. Yeah, sure. Like it's, I don't know if I care about the last waltz. I hate the band. <laughs> really? <laughs> I really do. But I mean, so many people love the last waltz. It was such an important moment. Okay. And it's Scorsese, right? No, I think it's Pennenbaker. Who, who is it? The correct pronunciation... Pennebaker. Yeah, Scorsese, you're right. Yeah. yeah, and I guess he was more interested in the the drummer or something, not the lead singer. Yeah, that was know. a whole thing. Of course. Well, Robbie Robertson, you don't know anything about the band, huh? I mean, not really. He's Canadian. Yeah. He took all our money. There's something with, like, rights where he's kind of a jerk. Yeah, I mean, I he only know it. Tom is the special, is, was really special. He was the drummer. Got it, yeah. Well, I mean, I know the the classics thing you play in the car, and this is something my mom definitely is really into. Yeah. So I'll definitely have to call her, like for sure. Oh, my mom would know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wound up talking to a dear friend and band loyalist, Nico, to find out what the last waltz was all about. To paraphrase our long drawn out band Gushthesh, I learned it was a music concert documentary directed by Martin Scorsese but is considered by many the greatest concert documentary of all time. It captured popular American-Canadian band's The Band's final concert at the Fillmore West on Thanksgiving Day in 1976. The concert wasn't just the band playing their hits. They invited the biggest names in 70s rock. Nico even mentioned she lost her virginity to someone that looked like Robbie Robertson, just because he looked like Robbie Robertson. This is what I learned about the members of the band so you can keep the characters in order. The band is guitarist Robbie Robertson, most known as the studious songwriter with Swagger, Rick Danko, classic bassist type, quietly charming and consistent, Garth Hudson played the organ, synth, keyboard, some fans called him a wizard, Richard Manuel, the soulful somber one who played piano and sang with a very recognizable falsetto voice, then Levon Helm, the drummer and singer, who was magic. He was the only member from the American South. 
Levon has a huge cult following to this day. Keep in mind I knew practically nothing about the band and wasn't really a fan of their music. My apologies in advance if this is offensive to you and you no longer trust me as a documentary filmmaker or music fan or former employee of Kim's Video. However, as a curious person and pop culture addict, I would learn a lot very quickly. So any commentary you hear comes after the interview and the research. Back to the tape, just moments after we received our assignment. Bob Dylan wasn't there, was he? I think he might have been. Yeah. The other thing that Joni is the only woman who was involved in it. Really? Joni Mitchell was the only female performer at the actual concert. The MGM recordings of the Staple Singers and Emmylou Harris were integrated into the film. You wouldn't necessarily know it was on a different day entirely. The original bill included Neil Young, Bob Dylan, Neil Diamond, Ronnie Hawkins, Eric Clapton, Dr. John, Van Morrison, Ringo Starr, Muddy Waters, and a couple of poets of the era. Where was it? San Francisco or something? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> but I will say I have the perfect call to make. Hey, Jules. Hey, Nadia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I have something interesting to tell you. Okay. I explained to Nadia that I have 48 hours to find someone who was at the last waltz. Am I being recorded? Yeah, is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just woke up. I'm making breakfast. Um, so my name is Nadia Zold, and I am a filmmaker and longtime friend of Julia Thompson's. We were roommates together in Greenpoint, and um, worked on my first feature film together. So, okay, you probably are wondering why you're my first phone call. Yes. So. <laughs> The event is The Last Waltz. The Last Waltz. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, am I the right person to be talking to? I mean, I know who the right person is, and it's your husband. (laughs) Yeah, I'm making breakfast. You should talk to him. Is this Jules? Yeah, this is Jules. Hi, Jules. How's it going with you? I explained to Stephen our assignment. And it happens that the event that I was assigned is one that you're closely affiliated with. So I thought you'd be the perfect first person to call. Uh So the event is The Last Waltz. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I don't really know anything about The Last Waltz. I was the associate producer. You were the associate producer? Yeah. (laughs) So were you at the concert? Oh, yeah. You were at the concert. I set the concert up. I set up an interview for later in the afternoon with Stephen Prince, my friend's husband and associate producer of The Last Waltz. Check, beginner's luck. In just under two hours, I found my source. Here's a little preview of Stephen Prince. The guy is a character, like character. I'm Stephen Prince. I now live in wonderful, beautiful Ojai, California. At the time, that uh, the last wall started, really. I was uh, working with Martin Scorsese and Jonathan Taplin, who produced Mean Streets for Marty, called Marty up and told him that uh, Robbie and the band were going to perform their last concert at Winterland. And he wanted to document it. As even more luck would have it, I happened to also get in touch with another producer on The Last Waltz through a friend of a friend. 
My name is Jonathan Chaplin. I was the executive producer of The Last Waltz. I had been the tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band for four years in the late 60s. Currently, I'm an author. So that's it. That's me. That's super cool. I, I can't believe I'm actually talking to you. It's very cool. Um, I ended up interviewing um, Stephen Prince. Do you remember Stephen Prince? Oh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Is he still alive? Yeah. Alive and well. Um, Jesus. Yeah. He's actually married to one of my friends. So that's sort of how, you know, I got to him. Right. Yeah. So I guess that the first question is like, do you remember working with him at all and what that was like? Well, yeah, he had nothing to do with the last waltz. He was Marty's gopher. He was his um, personal assistant. Okay. And they were, and they were friends. I I don't know what to say. You know, I mean, he, he was a malign influence in Marty's life at that time, but, but that's what Marty wanted. You know, the character that's in taxi driver is pretty close to who he is. Got it. It had nothing to do with The Last Waltz. Zero. Wow. Okay. So was he on set? There was no set. There was a night in San Francisco in Winterland. You know, we got there very early in the morning, set up. The concert lasted almost four hours, and that was it. I mean, there were some later shots on stage at MGM in Los Angeles, but those were minor additions. Oh my God, that's a beautiful little shot. It's nickel-plated, snub-nosed, otherwise the same as a service revolver. That'll stop anything that moves. A magnum, they use that in Africa for killing elephants. That 38, that's a fine gun. If you didn't recognize that voice, that was Stephen Prince. He played Easy Eddie, the gun salesman in Martin Scorsese's 1976 film Taxi Driver, starring Robert De Niro. Scorsese made a documentary about Stephen just after filming New York, New York and The Last Waltz. Why Stephen? You have to see the movie and then you'll understand. He's such a good storyteller. He was an insider in Scorsese's team during Marty's most publicized struggle with cocaine. Here's a clip of one of Stephen's wild stories from the 1978 documentary, American Boy, directed by Scorsese. You know how you give an adrenaline shot? Okay, your adrenaline needle's like about that big and you gotta give it into the heart. And you have to put it in a stabbing motion and then plunge down on a thing. I got the medical dictionary out, looked it up, got a magic marker, made a magic marker where her heart was, measured down, <laughs> measured down like a, uh, two or three ribs, and measured in between there, and I just stood there and I went, ah! and then, uh, and she came back like that. Do you recognize that story? Let me give you a little refresher. That was Quentin Tarantino's inspiration for the famous overdose scene in Pulp Fiction. All right, tell me what to do. Okay, uh, you're giving her an injection of adrenaline straight to her heart, but she's got a breastplate, so you gotta pierce through that. So what you gotta do is you gotta bring the needle down in a stabbing motion. I, I, gotta, I gotta stab her three times? No, you don't gotta fucking stab her three times. You gotta stab her once, but it's gotta be hard enough to get through her breastplate into her heart, all right? And then once you do that, you pr- press down on the, the plunger. Okay, then, what's ha- then what happens? I'm curious about that myself. This ain't no fucking joke, man. Am I gonna oh, kill her? I mean, no, 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 she's about to come out of it, like that. It's, all right, count to three. 
I was pretty sure Stephen wasn't lying to me about being at the Lost Waltz. But before going any deeper into the podcast, TD and I decided we must watch the film. This is Robbie Robertson being interviewed by Scorsese in The Last Waltz. The band has been together 16 years, together on the road. We did eight years in bars, dives, dance halls, eight years of concerts and stadiums, arenas. We gave our final concert, the band's final concert. We called it The Last Waltz. Keyboard player alert. Second song. Definitely a weird solo. Where I'm like, oh, wait, what? All right, band. Like in a good way? Yeah. That was some weird ass shit. Some portamentos, some real dorky, nerdy keyboard stuff. So wait, that's a synth? Yes, that keyboard player has a whole rig, but he's hidden in the back. Where <laughs> usually are. Just so you know, Teeny is a keyboard player. <laughs> That was Teeny reflecting on Garth Solo. She confirms he's a wizard. We were taken aback by how beautiful the film was. The lighting, the framing, the lack of typical clips of the fawning audience, no shaky camera, how beautiful Robbie Robertson looked, beaming with happiness, and right there in the spotlight, sometimes even winking at Martin Scorsese. Watching Levon belt out those songs while pounding the drums, we could have used more shots of Richard, Levon, Rick, and Garth. But honestly, the film was really something. We now understand maybe why this is relevant. Because <laughs> Robbie Robertson just died on August 9th of this year. Yeah. How did we miss that? Yeah, which is crazy because he was a very important musician. But he also was really complicated, you know, from my understanding. There were some money complications with the band, and I think he wasn't well-liked. We would later learn that there was a lot of beef between Robbie and the rest of the band, especially with Levon. Robbie received nearly 100% of the writing credits of the band's songs. The rest of the band didn't want to stop touring, they wanted to go on. So maybe the last waltz was a celebration for Robbie, but to the rest of the band, it was an unwanted end. Here's Teeny speaking about Robbie Robertson. Uh, he continued to collaborate with Scorsese and did music for Raging Bull. Oh, whoa. The King of Comedy, A Color of Money. I love, the, I love all those movies. Yeah, Casino, Gangs of New York. Oh my God. So they continued to have a long working relationship. Okay, Joni's on. Her outfit is terrible, though. <laughs> Look how beautiful she was. Oh, she's playing Coyote, right? No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios and you're up. that they cut from the conversation they were talking about having all the women and how it was amazing to then <laughs> cutting to Joni Mitchell as one of the most influential musicians of all time. <laughs> well, yeah, it's classic. Were there women involved with the band? I mean, not sexually, but musically. Well, 
the women were very important. This is executive producer John Taplin. But they weren't out in front. They weren't in the band. You know what I'm saying? They were not sexist or anything. And they weren't like a heavy metal band and thrashing around. And they behaved themselves fairly well on the road, the members of the band. So, I mean, that wasn't the problem. You know, it's 2020 hindsight. 80% of rock and roll in 1968 was men. <laughs> you know, I mean, Janis Joplin was the outlier. I mean, when Janis came on stage in Monterey, it was like, holy fuck, what is this? It was amazing. But, you know, that was not normal. Joan Baez was the most important folk singer there was. Bob Dylan was showing up at her concert, she was introducing Bob Dylan to a much larger audience. Was Bob Dylan sexist at all? No, I mean, he, he worshipped his wife. Robbie Robertson was born in Toronto and grew up in the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve. He was Cayuga and Mohawk, and his biological dad was a Jewish gambler, in his own words. When he was a teenager, after seeing the popular Southern rockabilly band, Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, he became obsessed with music from the American South, in particular, the Delta Blues. When he was 16, Robbie joined the Hawks, and that is where he and Levon kindled their friendship. The story goes that Robbie and Levon surpassed Ronnie's skills, and they went on to become the backing band for Bob Dylan, along with the three other members from the Hawks. Levon's stories of growing up in the South became fodder for Robbie's songs, so it would become the band songs. Robbie and Levon were inseparable and awed by one another's talents. Some say, without Robbie, there'd be no Levon, and without Levon, there'd be no Robbie. There's also just something so amazing about purely life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the band song, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, written by Robertson. It's probably their biggest hit other than The Wait and maybe Up on Cripple Creek. The song paints a bleak picture of the end of the war from the perspective of Virgil Kane, a fictitious white farmer and Confederate soldier from Tennessee. The song encapsulates the end of the war and the defeat of the Confederacy. Though Robertson supposedly didn't intend to make it a swan song for the losing side, many Americans have latched onto it as such. The song is controversial for obvious reasons. The song was made popular largely because it was sung by Helm himself. And what was brought with him was the musical stylings of blues and roots music from the Delta. Levon Helm was raised on a cotton farm near Turkey Scratch, Arkansas. To many, Levon was the heart and soul of the band. He happens to also be the one who most vocally criticized, bashed, hated Robertson after the band broke up. His whole book is practically an indictment to how much Robbie screwed him and how much Last Waltz sucked. The two besties didn't reconcile until Levon was on his deathbed in the early 2000s, and who knows how that conversation really went. So after all this learning, it left me and Teeny with the question, what is this film really documenting? One thing I can say with certainty is it is one of the best concert documentaries I've ever seen. But what I am seeing doesn't seem true. Robbie Robertson appears to be the lead singer, and he's not. And everyone seems to be having this great time, but are they? Was Stephen Prince even the associate producer? 
So whose legacy is The Last Waltz really? Is it Robbie's, the band's, Scorsese's? Or is this all like male ego hogwash? I decided to call series creator Webb Barr, who gave us the assignment. Um, but I was just curious, like, what do you think the legacy of The Last Waltz is? I think it's something that is different for everybody, honestly. I think that right now is a good time to think about a lot of these things. But also for me, it's like just a moment in time of watching a band kind of grapple with finality. What we know now about the band and Lee Von Helm and Robbie Robertson and like, was this really the end and all those things? You don't really know it while you're watching the movie. For me, I try to block out a lot of what I know and just enjoy like the beauty of the concert and the film and try not to think about all the drama, for lack of a better word. I knew it was impossible to block out all the drama. One, I love drama. Two, music is a vehicle towards understanding history and culture that is way more interesting than a textbook. However, I really needed to complete this assignment, a conversation with Mr. Stephen Prince before the 48 hours was up. Okay, it's at one hour, 24 minutes, 32 seconds. We've spotted Stephen Prince for the first time <laughs> on the stage. He's, he's entering the stage um, where we see Emmylou Harris playing with the band. This is just so cool. Drum roll, please. I finally present to you the always entertaining Stephen Prince. Boris Levin, who was the set designer, had done some sketches of what he saw at different camera angles. And one sketch that I really liked was the reverse shot from uh, Emmy Lou Harris from her back looking onto the soundstage. And I kept on bugging Marty and he said, okay, okay, set the soundstage up. So we got all these dollies and platforms and all set up and we made that shot and you could see me walk up to the stage and ask the camera guy if he got it he did and ended up in the film so it's confirmed steven was at the last waltz or at the very least the mgm recordings before we really get going what is up with the beef between john and steven who is John Taplin? Jonathan Taplin was a producer for Marty on Mean Streets, and he was involved in the music world, too. He also knew Robbie, so that's how he got to be in there. So he was a producer on The Last Waltz? I don't think he... No, I didn't get a producer's credit, did he? No. If he did, that's, that was just kindness. He really had nothing to do with the film. And you know what he said about you? Nothing kind. <laughs> he said you were you didn't have anything to do with the last waltz. That's what he said. He did. Yeah. So you think you get to be an associate producer of a film and you don't have anything to do with it? He's crazy. I think he's mad at me. <laughs> anyway, back to the last waltz. Here is Stephen on the origin story. <laughs> Marty told me go have a meeting with these guys and take Laszlo, Laszlo Kovacs, cinematographer. And I said, okay, I'll do that. To be absolutely truthful, I wasn't all that excited about it because we had 
<laughs> films we were making. But curiosity took over, and I went and I met with Jonathan Taplin and Robbie Robertson and Laszlo Kovacs, and Robbie said, yeah, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have Thanksgiving dinner, and we're going to serve Thanksgiving meal to all these people, and then we're going to have our concert, which will be the last waltz we're calling it. And he said, I think a couple of 16 millimeter handheld cameras and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to get a recording truck and record it. And this was the very beginning of the whole thing. So I went back to Marty and I said, uh, this is what they want to do. And Marty's quiet for about three, four minutes while he was thinking. And he said, no, no 16 Panavision cameras. Panavision cameras, yes, we'll need seven Panavision cameras. Marty, seven Panavision cameras. That's not easy. Yes, you should fly up to this place with Boris Levin, this old Russian. He's very cool. So we flew up to San Francisco a couple of times and checked the whole thing out. Boris got some ideas in his head. And he completely redesigned Winterland, made it look like an opera house. And he had friends in the San Francisco Opera Company, so he got the set for La Traviata. And he also went to the MGM prop place, and he got chandeliers from Gone with the Wind. We had 15 tractor trailers. We had a recording studio. Two tractor trailers were air conditioning. We actually air conditioned this place. We completely redid it. So where did you guys get the financing to do all of this? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, Robbie, you know, he, he wrote the check. You know, Robbie was the, the golden child for Warner Brothers, and Marty was the golden child for United Artists. So it was really kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, it was. I mean, there was never any pressure from anybody, which made it really nice because, you know, Robbie wrote the original checks for one million, two million, whatever they were. So that takes a lot of pressure. There was no asshole like Harvey Weinstein. I want this, I want that. You know, none of that. Yeah. And that's one reason why I think it holds up. It's so well done is because there was no pressure. These numbers are disputed by others, and it is common knowledge the band's promoter, Bill Graham, put in a significant amount of his own money to get the project off the ground. But anyway, back to Stephen. Actually, I'm going to step back for a second, because I think a lot of the people listening to this probably don't understand what a producer does. Would you be able to just describe like what your position on the film was in sort of practical terms? You've got executive producers, right? So they're just the money people, the business people. I was the associate producer. Robbie was the producer, but he had no film knowledge at that time. So I was doing all of the logistical film stuff, getting the crew, the cinematographers, the cameras, the recording setup, the lights, all the stuff you need to make a movie. And a good associate producer or producer, his job is to make sure the director has everything he needs 
and wants to make a movie. And for you as a producer, what would you say your focus was on that night? Uh, I was all about making sure it was getting down on film. And we weren't having any glitches, big glitches. And it sounds like Marty wanted a lot of things, so. He did want a lot of things, but I'll tell you one thing he did, which was kind of out of left field. He decided he was going to get each song and make up camera shots for every camera. It was like a script. <laughs> it was so intense. It showed where he wanted every camera at every point in the song. Did he follow it? Yes, everybody did. What did you think when you first saw it? I thought it was really complicated. But I thought to myself, oh, we're all going to have earphones and, you know, communication, so it won't be tough. But that was a silly thought because the minute the music set started, there was no communication. <laughs> no headset system could work with playing music like that. <laughs> so was the coverage consistent with the script that he published? Yes, it was. So people are just prepared. That's the thing. You've got to be absolutely prepared if stuff goes wrong. At one point, all the lights went out, except for one spotlight and Laszlo's camera. It was perfect. It was beautiful. It was <laughs> more people scrambling than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> And we had runners that would run with magazines to the cameras, pick up the spent stuff, bring it back. Loaders would load the magazines. We shot in one night 600,000 feet of film. That's a lot of film. I mean, just serving dinner to 5,000 people is a big deal. Then removing all that having the waltz and then stopping and having the show took a lot of people to work together. I had been there and been up since Sunday. So Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. So you didn't go to sleep for four days? Right. <laughs> Michael Chapman said to me once, you have the same motto as... Uh, what was the name? DuPont. Better living through chemistry. <laughs> got you. Who attended the concert? Like, what was the energy in San Francisco at that time? Who got tickets? Like, Yeah, it was the hardest ticket to get, right? I'd say out of the 5,000 people that were there, 3,000 were industry people. And the rest were fans. It was thick as flies in there. The tickets went on sale in San Francisco at 11 o'clock in the morning, and they were sold out by 12.30. <laughs> wow. How would you describe the fan base of the band at that time and who was at the show? Oh, they were, you know, a bunch of music-loving hippies. <laughs> Everybody was dressed up because it was a waltz. You know, they had tie-dye shirts on with uh, tuxedos coats over them and top hats with feathers sticking out of them. And uh, the smell in the room was Acapulco gold. <laughs> it was an incense. What was the vibe in San Francisco at that time? Oh, you know, 78. It was still kind of hippie thing going on, but that 
So it was at the end of it. Yeah, speaking of the end of the 70s, I mean, that's kind of when the drug moment hit its peak, you know, with disco and stuff like that, drug use got even more intense. What, what was, like, the drug scene like at the band show? You know, everybody smoking pot, having a good time, doing some coke, too. I remember there was a, a reporter for Rolling Stone who showed up at the shoot on MGM lot, and we were walking around, and I was showing him different things. And he said, come here. I said, yeah. He said, I heard there was cocaine on this set. And I looked him straight in the eye, and I said, there's so much cocaine on this set that the ambassador to Peru is in that dressing room. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's how they always were, drunk and high. <laughs> were there any memorable moments of high tension? Bob Dylan couldn't decide whether he wanted to wear a hat or not wear a hat, so he wouldn't go on until he could decide. <laughs> you know, little ego things. Honestly, I don't I don't love the hat. I think he should have gone without the hat. Yeah. So obviously there's been a lot of um, articles and books, like, including the book written by um, Yvonne Helms, right? The correct pronunciation, Yvonne Helms. His book famously tearing apart the concert and Robbie Robertson. Do you have any thoughts on him and and his feelings and why? Yeah, he didn't exhibit any of that. You know, I was around him for months while they were working on this, and he didn't exhibit that at the time. He was very cooperative and he went along and did whatever he needed to do. So, you know, egos, clashing egos, I suppose. He felt like, you know, Robbie was getting all the spotlight. He wasn't getting enough, you know. So you're saying the experience of the actual making of this film was different than how the media portrayed it? Yeah. It was super easy, super cooperative. I mean, if he was disgruntled where we were making it, I would have picked up on it. How would you describe the relationship between Marty and Robbie as they became closer? They became really fast, good friends, both respecting one another very much. Robbie came to live with us for a couple of years. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> That's crazy. She, yes, it is crazy. Yeah, we Marty had this house up on Mulholland Drive. And, you know, we were the hot movie people in Hollywood. So we had a lot of stuff going on. It was great. Great fun. Great fun. We had a projection room. And we watched like two, three films a night. And all kinds of people would come. Sam Fuller, directors, Francis, Steven Spielberg. I mean, everybody came up to watch movies. We would go to the studio. We would work at the studio, come home and have dinner and start watching movies like nine, ten o'clock. So there wasn't a lot of sleeping. Not a lot of sleeping. We were all thin. <laughs> but when rock and roll moved in and added to the scene, it was crazy. How so? It was just so much partying, so much craziness going on. It was so much fun. <laughs> we always seemed to get a whole lot more done when we didn't have a lot of company around, you know? Yeah. Just, uh, we were more productive. And as soon as company came, of course, you know, we'd start having fun. 
Yeah. You know what happens when you have too much fun. <laughs> that was Rick Danko, the bassist from the band, being interviewed by Scorsese in The Last Waltz. It's really interesting because as a filmmaker, it's always kind of the second act turn where it's, it becomes about how drugs sort of ruined everything. And in this case, I think drugs did ruin everything. It seems that way. What I'm getting to here is the dramatization of drugs. Any biopic or music doc you watch, I can promise you the film goes something like this. Someone who just said no, then second act, drugs are awesome, look at this amazing life, and then second act turn, drugs ruined everything. Then the protagonist either dies or rises from the ashes and the whole audience in the movie theater is crying. So is the legacy of The Last Waltz that everyone was on coke and it was the last fun time before everything got super dark? I'm just curious, yeah, like what your thoughts are on the time period and, and, and how addiction played into everything, yeah. Well, look, I mean, drugs in the 60s was pot, and that never ruined anything. That was executive producer Jonathan Taplin. That was all easy. But this vicious drug called cocaine just seemed to arrive unannounced in the early 70s. And it was horrible. It ruined lots of lives. And then because it makes you so nervous and ampy, then people thought, well, I need something to calm me down. And so then that becomes people start to snort heroin on the other side of it. And, and then the whole thing just gets completely fucked up. <laughs> you know, it's astonishing that there are as many people who are still alive. You know, that Robbie made it to 80 is great. Bless his soul. He wasn't into drugs, though, was he? No, not at all. Was I think Marty was into coke. And... They were both into coke during the last waltz, but, but Robbie got off. And Marty did, too. He almost killed himself. That's probably why, you know, it's hard to talk about Stephen. I mean, that's painful, I can imagine. He was the connection. Yeah. That's rough. Alcoholism led to Richard Manuel's death by suicide. Rick Danko struggled with heroin and died from heart failure in 99. Levon Helm struggled with heroin as well. I asked Stephen if he was Marty's drug connection, and this is what he told me. I really wasn't. But Robbie had big connections, as you can imagine. So he would get ounces, you know? So at one point, Marty and Robbie bought me a safe. <laughs> it was huge. It took like eight guys to move it. And I kept the stuff in there. And when they wanted some, I'd go in and get it and bring it. I also asked him about his relationship to drugs now. I got sober 42 years ago. Around the time Marty got sober, we had a little, a bad incident, you could call it. Marty got really sick and I had to rush him to the hospital. You know, I didn't know what to do. And the doctor said, it's a good thing he came in because he wouldn't have made it. Platelets were unbelievably out of control. Was Robbie Robertson just the reliable businessman? And the other guys, minus Garth, of course, just out of control? Was Robbie Robertson capitalizing on their dysfunction? Damn, this really is turning into a Hollywood soap. According to John Taplin on the breaking up of the band. Well, he didn't screw anybody. He broke up the band in the sense that he didn't want to go on the road anymore. He was tired of it. And he is the man 
see the man with stage fright. He never liked being on stage that much. He didn't screw them, as Levon tried to say, in the sense that nobody in 1969 would have understood that in the year 2005, only songwriters were going to make any money from the music business. That was not obvious. And Robbie got up every morning and wrote songs while Levon, Rick, and Richard slept in. You know, I mean, on Music from Big Pink, both Richard and Rick have two songs that they wrote on. And by stage fright, Robbie was the only writer. And that's just because they stopped writing. And that's the difference. Robbie would bring the songs fully done into the studio and teach them to the rest of the band. It was not Robbie's responsibility to give each member of the band a fifth of his songwriting. This is a paraphrase of an excerpt from Levon Helms' autobiography. I'm not in it for my health. I'm a musician and I want to live in the way I do. What if the rest of us want to continue as the band? So what would it have looked like if they kept touring? Could they have gotten the help they needed and continued to rock on like the Rolling Stones? So after the band's dramatic breakup in 1976, Levon spent most of his life living and creating music on his property in Woodstock, New York. The barn where he recorded would later become an iconic music venue called the Levon Helm Studio. To many, the Levon Helm Studio is a landmark and the manifestation of Levon's legacy. I had reached the end of my journey, or was it just the beginning? Stephen and John were both Hollywood insiders and close confidants of Marty. I, like Nico, had fallen in love with the band, and especially Levon Helm. The 48 Hours was up days ago, but I needed to understand more, so I headed on the Baby Boomer Express to none other than Woodstock, New York, where the band recorded their first album, Music from Big Pink. Note to self, maybe when I come back, Teeny will join the drum circle. I went to the local bar to get oriented with the scene over a beer. My name's Harmony Magic. Is that really your name? Yeah, my dad's name is Ben Magic, and my mom's name was Sally Sunshine. Um, and I'm from Woodstock. <laughs> no way. Uh, <laughs> you can believe that. Um, it is a vortex of a town, and I mean that in a very like like loving way. After exit 17, there's there's a, like a time warp that happens. It's like a kind of a myth, but if you sleep for three days in the shadow of Overlook Mountain, that you will So Levon definitely slept I never for three days in the shadow. By myself and I was not ready just yet but I was ready to head downtown and meet some locals. I was pointed to the shop on Main Street owned by local artist Mike Dubois, a good friend and collaborator of Levon Helm. This is him talking about the origins of the Midnight Ramble. The Ramble started as uh, Levon was recovering from um, throat cancer surgery, and he was really dying out financially and about to lose his house. This studio, the picture of that place, was going to be taken by the bank, and uh, we're like, let's have a couple house parties to raise some rent to help pay the bills here, and that's how it started, just uh, 
and they were called rent parties. Then they blew up and it kept expanding. More and more people kept coming. And then all of his friends, Chris Christopherson, Elvis Costello, Emmylou Harris, the list goes on. You can look it all up. Until he passed away in 2012. Well, the band is meaningful for, you know, that's a long conversation. They changed a lot of direction of the musical uh, direction of that time period and were um, doing what's now called Americana which didn't have a name back then, which is basically Roots music that came from the Delta, and Levon had an instrumental part in developing the sound of the band. Though Robbie got the credit for writing the songs, it was really a group effort that, uh, you know, that, that gave the band that sound, and, and Garth was like the most musically knowledgeable. There was a lot of animosity that ended between Robbie Robertson and the rest of the band. Robbie retained all the publishing rights and was the one that got wealthy on it all. Well, all the other guys, because of various reasons, the substance abuse problems, or they weren't aware, signed away their rights and took the name of the band. They, were, they took the name of the band, Robbie took the publishing rights, and publishing is where you made the money. So around this town, you may run into some people that aren't happy with Robbie, yeah. <laughs> you know. It seems to me Levon left a pretty beautiful legacy, and maybe, just maybe, it had very little to do with the last waltz. That night, I went to the Ramble, and it was wonderful and magic. Levon's grandson was there, and he played the drums, and people came from as far as Florida to enjoy the experience. No cell phones, no abrasive lights, no booze, just folksy, rootsy music and band covers. Anyway, I guess he kind of had to be there. They definitely were not keen on me recording. The thing I found out was the Levon Home Studio was a hotspot for new popular music acts. Yes, there was a lot of nostalgia and reverence for the past, but there was also a lot of excitement for music now. The next day, high off my experience at the Ramble, with my $6 latte in hand, I headed to the famous Woodstock flea market. My name is Jed. I'm a mailman, this is my regular day job, and Actually, Big Pink was on my route. Are you a musician? Um, I, I, I'm, I can play a little bit. You know, I play up on Cripple Creek and, uh, and um, Get Up Jake would be the two songs that I, that I, that I played. Actually, um, Garth lives around the corner from us. He's the last one, he's the last one, so. Do you know Garth? I do not, um, just a fan, you know, uh, a couple of my buddies go to nursing homes and they do that you know just they know someone's in there so he's um uh he, he's been slowing down for the last few the last few years you know not as mobile as he used to be it's crazy to think that rock icons of the 70s are old enough to live in nursing homes maybe not so crazy time does drone on after all but the way we've immortalized them as these hunky men who epitomize strength and youth, imagining Garth there just gave me pause. Back to an interview with John Taplin speaking about music of his era. You know, I don't want to be a 75-year-old guy saying, get off my lawn, kids. But, you know, I, I think we were very lucky to be at a time when there was so much genius in the world. And... To my mind, there's very little genius now. There's a lot of people proclaiming themselves to be great, 
but there's very little greatness. 50 years from now, very little stuff will pass the who cares test. I asked Webb Barr about this. I don't know what genius is, you know, like I, I think I would leave it on that and let the audience decide because thank God we don't have like some like arbitrary board or committee that decides on geniuses. Instead, we have Oscars and Grammys. And but like, does that mean that those people are geniuses or did they just make really good work? I don't know. And I don't really care. It's all subjective. Yes, genius is subjective, and it was helpful to be reminded of that. That being said, people throw the word genius around a lot, especially when it comes to white rock stars. The last waltz was dominated by white male musicians of the era, and it seems to me, as much as it was this magical, iconic celebration, there was some stuff to unpack. Teeny and I ended up calling up a good friend, producer and songwriter Bartiz Strange, who had played at the Levon Helm studio just weeks before. We wanted to find out what it was like to play there and his take on the legacy of the band. Playing there was really cool. There are places you play where you're just like, wow, I can't believe I get to play in a place like this. And that place is a place like that, for sure. It's small, very intimate. I think it probably holds 200 to 250 people. Levon's drum set is set up. You can play his drums, which sound incredible. It's like the fattest, most beautiful snare sound you'll ever hear. The room is like perfectly tuned. Um, the kind of room where like you can step away from the mic and just sing and everyone can hear, you know, it's beautiful. And it creates like a really special thing. It's nice. I'm a black guy from South and I, I mean, I'll always say like the best guitar players and drummers and singers that I ever met were black people. And a lot of them played country music and Americana and roots music and blues and gospel. And they were freak level monster musicians who learned from freak level monster musicians going back forever and ever and ever. <laughs> and, and everybody knows them, but none of them ever made it out. And, you know, I, I mean, my mother, I would include in that, you know, I've never heard anyone sing like my mom. It's, you wouldn't believe it, you know, and it's like by way of just like how the systems in place are and how talent is found and, how much money you need to have to get in the door or the connection you need or the uncle you need or the school you need to get into or even just having the savvy to like sit in a room with a bunch of white people and be able to tell them what you really need to make a record. You know, like there's there's no tools. There's not a lot of tools in place to make sure that black artists, w women, black artists, non-binary black artists, artists of color, like there's there's not a structure in America or a pipeline to make sure that those people are seen and then appreciated and then paid, <laughs> you know? And I know a lot of white artists still who like, they can afford to not be paid, you know? So they can be seen and appreciated until they get paid. <laughs> it's hard to talk about this in a straight line because it just runs into every edge of the music industry and then also our society, you know? Um, but on the subject of the band, I think that at a certain point in history, when we all started to decide what a band looked like, it became bands like Led Zeppelin and the band because everyone was white boys that was making that music and being seen for it. And I always appreciated bands that challenged that. And my parents did too. Um, and they put me onto that and were really hardcore about making sure I understood that like, you could be, you don't have to look like them to do that. Like you can look like these other people. And there were some bands that were just like instrumental to me and in making sure I could see myself 
doing music at that level, even though I'm not like a white boy, you know? And so I think like music obviously has a long way to go there, but I'm encouraged. Like when I meet people like Tini or when I see players like Taja or like Lorraine, Ben, Melanie Charles, like all these artists that are black and brown and white and foreign or Chinese, you know, whatever, like from all over the world, like pulling up in Brooklyn and DC and, you know, Baltimore making great music and being seen like that's cool stuff. Um, hmm, I don't know. I think like the masculinity of the band and of the era, you know, <laughs> is real and it continues. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, that was what it was. Julia and I had never seen the film. Uh-huh. <laughs> they would never seen the last waltz before two days ago. And, you know, I always was like rolling my eyes at the band because I'm sort of like, oh, the band. Okay, whatever, the band. Right. Yeah, sure. I know Vivon's great, the band. And then, you know, we're watching this movie and I'm like, oh, I, get, I, I fully get it. I fully get the, like, the magic around these people. Like, because as you said, they're great artists. Like, they just are. I think I can have those feelings about what they represented, what they represent mm-hmm. now and have mixed feelings about it, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think it's important though, to name them though, like to say the feelings, because I think that's the issue with a lot of shit. Like people do bad things or just they're trash. And I think it's really up until now that people could be like, yo, this dude was actually ass. Like, you know, and it's good to say that because a, it humanizes the fuck out of these people, which I think is important. And also it validates just like another experience. I listen to a lot of country music and I'm like, man, I know these white boys don't fuck with black people at all. Right. But I'll be like, but Hank Williams got some bangers. Like I can't front. I'm I'm going to, I'm two stepping to that, you know, that's a part of it, but it kind of comes back to the whole, like being inspired and then wanting to build on top of something like right. I love that music because I want to make something that takes it somewhere else, you know? And that's, like liberating for me, not only as a musician, mm-hmm. but as a black person <laughs> in America mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. a country song or to make, you know, rock songs and be like, yeah, like this is a part of my history and my legacy as a person here, you know? Legacy is different for everybody and everyone has a different version of the truth. For Robbie, the last waltz was a giant celebration. For Levon, it was an unwanted end for the band. According to John Taplin, Stephen Prince wasn't even there. Let's get to the impetus of this podcast and this 48-hour assignment. Stephen Prince, my dear Stephen. You know, I've known this guy for over 10 years. This episode, it all comes back to him. Just being able to talk to you right now, is, it's, it's a privilege, really. So. Oh, it's my pleasure. I wouldn't do this for anybody. <laughs> I like to hear that. The one last question I have is when you're looking back at The Last Waltz and your participation, so I heard, I didn't know this until yesterday, but Robbie Robertson died a couple weeks ago. Yeah. What was that day like for you? How did you take that news? Well, I was sad, right? I was sorry to hear that. He was a wonderful guy and I loved him and I was sorry to hear that. How did you find out? It came on the news or it came on my phone. I assume that just as life continues, you have these very intense relationships. And just because they end, it doesn't mean they ended because of a bad thing. It's just time passing. Right. 
That's exactly right. You know, people want, will want to know, like, why did you stop making movies with Marty? How did you lose touch with Robbie? I did the film thing. I don't think I could have done it any better <laughs> with any other people. And you should give other things a chance, you know? You're only here for a short time, so you should try to do as many other things as you can. Don't get locked into one thing. That's how I feel about that. My motto has always been, if it's not fun, we don't do it. <laughs> You Had to Be There is a High Bar production. Created by High Bar. Today's episode, The Last Waltz, was written and hosted by Julia Thompson. Produced by Julia Thompson and Webb Barr, and co-produced by Teeny Lieberson. Edit, sound mix, and engineering by Teeny Lieberson. Original score by Teeny Lieberson. Artwork created by Dylan Lathrop. Special thanks to our parents, our friends, and to our story consultant and band superfan, Nicole McCormick. And most importantly, thank you to the artists who've inspired us, because they had to do it. <laughs>